right, everybody. Well, it's good to be back for another episode of Christ and Kingdom. Today, we are going to be diving into chapter three of The Christian Life by Sinclair Ferguson. And this chapter is so good. We've actually, um, we planned on dealing with it in two parts. And so this is going to be the first episode of two, where we plan on diving into a chapter entitled God's Plan of Grace. And this is a very, very important chapter because it it it, it lays the it lays the the, the groundwork. It's called the plan, uh, rather the chapter is the plan of grace, but it lays the groundwork for understanding the Christian life with a much bigger picture in mind to remember to remember and to remind ourselves that in fact it's not just about God saving us individually, but it's also about what God is doing historically and even eschatologically. Just the idea that God has a plan, God has a purpose, and it's a much bigger purpose than things that happen in our individual lives. Uh, There is such thing in the Christian um, tradition, there is such thing in theology as the purpose of God, or what theologians call the decree of God. And so I think it's important for us uh, to understand our salvation in relationship to this decree, And so we're going to be diving into those uh, talking points today because we want our doctrine of salvation, our doctrine of regeneration, and all the aspects of salvation to be uh, uniform and organic. And we want them to be connected and logical. We don't want them to be disjointed and certainly not random, but we want everything to be put together systematically the way that God reveals it in Scripture. And so super excited to dive into this this chapter here, The Plan of Grace. And to do that, of course, I'm joined once again by both Mike Tiemann and Kevin Moore. Brothers, welcome to the show. It's good to, good to see you guys. Good to hear from you guys again. Thanks, Emilio. Great to be with you, too. What up, guys? It's so good to be here, and what a great chapter. It is a great chapter. And uh, Mike, why don't you start us off, brother? I wanted to, I guess, as we think about this chapter and what Sinclair Ferguson is doing here, in talking about the plan of God, we have to also think about God's decree, as I mentioned. But when we think about God's decree, I think for a lot of Christians, they don't understand what a decree is or what the decree of God is. So maybe in basic terms, what are we thinking about when we're talking about God's decree? Yeah, what a great what a great topic and a complicated topic. Um, and I, I, I love how Sinclair, he kind of puts the cookies on the bottom shelf as you look through page 17. He doesn't use the term decree at all, right? He uses the word plan, right? Plan, God had a plan. Um, you know, in simple terms, he had a plan. He talks about the incarnation did not take place by accident or an afterthought. The life of Jesus was not one of chance. You know, so often we're, we, we just kind of default think that things kind of happened to Jesus and he rode the wave and eventually got to the cross by chance, right? And that's often the, we could probably say the pagan way of looking at it, right? Like just the, the incorrect way of, of looking at it. And so, you know, and he pulls two passages here that I just kind of want to read. I know we're going to visit them later, but in this, he, he quotes from, uh, pulls from Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four. And it says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he quotes Acts 4, 
For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servants Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And we're going to talk about those verses a lot later, but I think, you know, we just turned to some of the confessions and it gives such a beautiful and and succinct answer to the question of just simply what is uh, the decree of God. And if I could just read Belgic confession of uh, here, uh, chap- article 13, um, it says this, we believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of, nor can be charged with, the sin that occurs. And then skipping down, he says this, and this is going to come in later when we, when we apply these things. The doctrine, this doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious heavenly father. And if we come over to Westminster confession of faith, um, sorry, my page lost my page Westminster confession of faith, uh, section three, it says God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the uh, liberty or, sorry, I just, contingency, sorry, I don't know why I couldn't read that word, contingency of the second causes taken away, but rather established, right? And in simple, simple terms, God's decree just simply means that everything happens according to God's plan, right? Chance, chance isn't there. God is sovereign. If God is sovereign and we take that to its ultimate end, he's sovereign over everything, right? Amen. We're going we're gonna to focus in on salvation, but he's even sovereign over, over the big things, orbits of the sun and moons, and the small things, orbits of particle of dust as they fly around, you know, as Spurgeon says, in the sunbeam. Amen. Yeah. I, and I think that's, you know, I think that's what immediately comes to mind, right? When we believe that God is not a God of chance, a random God, or a God of contingencies, but that God does have a plan, does have a decree. But Kevin, how does that impact people practically? I mean, obviously, we're looking at a very practical book. And Sinclair Ferguson, you know, this is a practical book, but Sinclair at times get, gets pretty pretty technical and very specific. But I think at a practical level, how does how does this impact, you know, the people in the church, maybe even our capacity as pastors to counsel them? But what practical impact do you think that that theology should have for folks? I was always reading the chapter, and especially on page seventeen, it just reminded me of that Spurgeon quote, and which says this: "There's no no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty." Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and sovereignty will sanctify them. 
There is nothing which the children ought most earnestly contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation. And this Spurgeon goes on to say, it is the God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is the God upon the throne whom we trust. And knowing that God has ordained all things, Ephesians 1, 11 says that he's working all things out after the counsel of his will, that um, I think it was, uh, I forget which pastor said it, but I heard this, that the Trinity never meets in an emergency session. And the reality is that God has ordained all things. And, and what a comfort that is knowing that, and especially as you're counseling, as Amelia, you just said in a real practical way, that what has happened, um, whatever situation that you find yourself in, know that God rules and reigns over it all. And he has promised that as as a child of God, if you are born again, if you are regenerated, that he is working for his glory and your good. And... um you know, I think even just talking about salvation and talking about decrees is, is again, we're going to be talking about that here this evening, but knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that, again, he works all things out of the counsel of his own will. Mike read that quote earlier from Ferguson, which is, did the incarnation, uh, did that take place by accident or afterthought? And he goes, no, the life of Jesus was not one of chance. And so again, knowing that God foreknew he predestined. Jesus gave his life for the sheep. You know, I think of John chapter 10 there, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And knowing that God is, is was in complete control, that Christ was in complete control and he accomplished that which he set out to do. And I would even say this too is, you know, we talk about the decrees of God and knowing that God is, is sovereign over everything he will bring to pass that which he started. He will, be, If he foreknew us, he predestined, we will be glorified. He's not going to lose any of those that he has saved. And then again, I, I'd say too, even in, in the counseling room, that God has promised, as Romans 8, 28 says, that he's going to work all things together for good. Well, what is that good? It's being you being conformed into the image of Christ. But we can we can preach that. We can tell people that because we know our God rules and reigns over all. Mm. Amen. Yeah, no, amen. And I, I think that also works towards, like you said, in the counseling room, when you are telling people that regardless of the, sh- the circumstances that they're going through in life, the hardships, the afflictions, or whatever it may be, uh, that God, in his great plan, his plan of decree, I mean, we think of the plan of God at a cosmic level, at an eschatological level, at an eternal level, but that also includes all the little practical things in your life. So that that's very very important, right? That that because of that, you know, like everything matters, right? And and um and it's so so good for for Christians to have this foundation that even as Sinclair is going to focus on the life of Christ or Christology, it's important th- for I think for Christians to have a biblical foundation for the decree of God and one of the scriptures that supports that very much so is Ephesians chapter 1. Right in Ephesians chapter one, obviously there the apostle Paul elaborates on our redemption, and he does it from a very trinitarian sort of perspective as he ties in the work of the Son, the Father, and the Spirit in their distinctive roles in our salvation. But when it comes to the redemption that we have in the Son, he speaks about this decree in Ephesians chapter one, verse uh, seven through. Uh, 10, uh, and, and, and actually in 11 as well, but he says, you know, in him 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. And it is that that concept there of purpose that we need to be reminded of, I think, as Christians, that there is a purpose that God has, and that one purpose, so important to understand, right, it, that, that um, the Greek word eudakia, right, that, that, that really speaks of and where theologians get the idea of God's decree, and it has that, that prefix in Greek, you, which makes it like a good decree, <laughs> makes it a good purpose in a state, in, in a sense, right, that he has a good purpose in mind for us. And I think that's so important to be reminded that everything is working together for our good because everything adheres to this good purpose that God has, which includes who we are and what he has done uh, for us. And so I think that's so, that's so crucial to, to recognize that this means, as Ephesians 1.10 says, the plan that God has and he says, for the fullness of time, to unite everything in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so the decree of God is also like an organizing principle. We can bring all of our, all of our affairs, all of the events, the redemptive historical, all of the events that are transpiring in the world, even in our, in our world right now. We're thinking about cataclysmic things that are going on in this world, the potential as mainstream media right now is covering the real potential for nuclear war with Russia, okay? And how does the Christian look out into time and space at this moment? How do we look at the headlines? How do we look at the, you know, what we're looking, what we're listening to in the news? Well, we remember that history is not following any one dictator's plan, right? That Putin is not in charge, that Zelensky is not in charge, that the American presidents are not in charge, that everything is following the decree of God. And I, I don't know, I just think that is so important. And it reminds us too, on page 17 of Sinclair's book, you know, he brings up this notion that Jesus' entire life was determined, as it were, by this hour, right? The hour that God had appointed for him, and he knew that he had this, he had this appointed time by God, as God the Father had appointed a work for him to do. And in John chapter seventeen, that's exactly what's going on to going on here. Is in John chapter seventeen, as Jesus speaks of this hour, and in many other places throughout the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus' entire life is bound to this time. And therefore, when he says in verse 1, a father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may be glorified, or may glorify you. This hour, of course, is referring to this timetable, this divine timetable that the son is on. And it just reminds us that even as Jesus' life followed a distinct uh, decree of God, a distinct plan of God, so does everything else. And uh, I think that's just super important here. But let's go to the book of Acts, because 
Sinclair focuses on that as well. Uh, he just points out, as Mike has already mentioned here, but Kevin, when you think of these two passages in Acts, um, I don't know, man, what, what, do you, what do you think Luke is wanting us to, to come away with here? The, the sovereignty of God overall. You know, automatically, I think when reading these passages, I think a divine concurrence. You know, I think that these men did exactly what they wanted to do. I mean, you look at Acts 2.23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so, again, you know, you even look at the story of Joseph from Genesis. His brothers did exactly what they wanted. But what does Joseph say? God's the one that sent me here. And the reality of the situation is that God still rules and reigns over all. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is these men meant it for evil. These men wanted to crucify Christ. Yet it was according to the definite foreknowledge and plan of God. And, um, and God ordained the crucifixion. And what did he do? Evil men acted to bring it about. And um, just again, what a comfort that is, is no matter what comes our way, man, it, 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 we can rest in the sovereignty of almighty God. And again, as Emilio, you alluded to, there, there is no... You know what Spurgeon said too is, is there's no more comforting attribute that again in the decrees of God that the things that happen in our life they're 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 not accidents again it's all according to what God has and what He has ordained and and again uh, what a beautiful truth that is and what a comfort that is for the Christian yeah Amen I mean uh, Mike you know there in Acts chapter four. Um, we have a really strong statement about the sovereignty of God. And, you know, the early church, they, 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 they piggybacked on this idea that God is absolutely sovereign, like Kevin is, is um, you know, pointing out in terms of Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 4, they say a prayer where they're totally uh, resigned to the sovereignty of God and so for me, it's like, what can we learn from the early church when we think about what they were going through, what was going on here in Acts chapter 4, and how they responded in light of God's absolute sovereignty? Yeah, I mean, we learn, we learn everything. You know, they, they, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of, of trial, uh, they defaulted back to finding comfort in the sovereignty of God. You know, this is where that that practical theology <clears throat> comes into play now, <clears throat> where we take high and lofty ideas of the sovereignty of God and and say, okay, now what is how, how does how does that live out in your life? What does that that look like? You know, we read the the Belgic Confession says this doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us nothing can happen to us by chance, mm. right? And I remember, you know, just to share a personal story. Uh, Christmas 2019, my son got a skateboard, decided he was going to charge a, a hill outside of our house on it without a helmet on, um, and his head lost to the, to the road. Um, and you know, surprise, minutes, surprise. Yeah. Right. Your head versus the asphalt, your head's going to lose. And so we're there in the ER and a brain surgeon's coming in and looking at the CT scan. Ooh. And he's just sitting there going, um, hey, it's going to get worse before it gets better if it does. And he, he just says, prepare yourself. And, and I can't, like, as a dad, it, 
I can't even ex- explain the terror. You know, mm. it's like all the oxygen gets sucked out of the room. You're you're dizzy. But what I what I clung to in that moment was the attributes of God. I, I returned to who God was, right? In my thinking and in the warfare of that moment, in the tragedy of that moment, I wasn't worried about theodicy, right? I wasn't worried about the problem of evil. I found comfort that God is sovereign and we're here and God is sovereign and he's good. And if he takes my son, he's sovereign and he's good. And he always does what is right, right? It's that that practical theology of, you know, I'm not looking for 10 steps to becoming a better person. I'm looking at that moment. I'm looking at who who is God. And that's what I'm that's what I'm clinging to. You know, I was I was thinking of of Matthew chapter 10. Uh, verse 29 says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not one sparrow is going to fall to the ground. So birds dying, however many birds die in a day, all of them fall to the ground because of the father, right? That's, that's, that's sovereignty on a grand scale. It says, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than a sparrow, right? And the, the confessions here that we read, and, and we could go over to the Heidelberg, and, and, and it, it uses that language of, of father, mm. right? We find so much comfort in the decrees of God, the plans of God, the perfect plan of God, even though we don't understand it, even though there might be trials and persecution in our lives, right? Even though we might face the reality of a loss of a child, right? What, whatever that is, we come back and we know we have a good and loving father who is sovereign over all. And we find so much comfort. How, how terrifying would it be if you're sitting in a counseling room with, with somebody that just lost a kid or something? You're like, hey, yeah, I don't, I don't know where God was. Like, he, that sucks, right? Like, there's no hope there. Right there's just despair there. If God is not sovereign, um, the only hope is found in the absolute sheer sovereignty and goodness and kindness and gentleness of God. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I love that you're quoting the confessions. You're um, you're spot on, brother, because that's exactly what God's sovereignty is meant to produce in all of us. I think. I think we're, you know, we're thinking about the plan of God, the decree of God, and I use the language of decree because I think that's what it all is referring to, and we're thinking about this at a very grand level. But, uh, you know, when it on in this book for Sinclair, the plan of God is really also to get us to think about our salvation in context. And so, on page eighteen, there he refers to all of the different aspects that go in to the Christian life, specifically as we think about salvation. And he mentions justification, and he mentions regeneration, and he mentions sanctification, and so on. And of course, this is part of what is known as the Ordo Salutis. This is the order of salvation. It's ironic, but I just recently did a church Bible study uh, where I taught the Ordo Salutis to the church. Um, It's funny, but we're doing a home Bible study. But uh, we're filming it now and actually going to probably be putting that up on YouTube soon. So 
you'll have to go to City View Church for that and look up the YouTube channel there for that. But um, but I covered the Ordo because it's so important, even as we're going through Romans for the Bible study, we're going through justification. But I wanted to go through the Ordo Salutis to show us where does justification fit in in the overall order of salvation. God's plan is not just to zap us with justification, right? But there's there's an actual logical and even sequential order to our salvation that goes all the way from eternity, uh, if, if we could even use the language, right? In eternity passes, we're thinking about uh, election and predestination and foreknowledge. And then, of course, as we go in a time and space, we're thinking about regeneration and justification, sanctification, perseverance, and we're thinking, and, you know, obviously throw in their adoption, right, after justification. And then, of course, we look at the order of salvation that even after, you know, justification and perseverance, let's say, the order is not done. We still have the resurrection, and we still have glorification. Now, sometimes in the order salutis, people put glorification at the very end, but I like to insert the idea of resurrection because it reminds us that our our glorification is is in, in two steps, right? We we die in the Lord. We enter the intermediate state where we are awaiting yet another installment of the grace of God in glorification. We don't die and immediately enter into our final glorified state. That is for even more of a future time, which kind of blows our mind. But I want to ask both of you guys, just in terms of why is it important, therefore, to have a proper grasp on the order salutis or the order of salvation? <laughs> uh, Kevin's pointing at me. <clears throat> oh, I yeah. Mean, he wants to uh, throw it all on you. He just He's just dumping it. <laughs> Here's it, my first thought when I was thinking through this question is the value of the order of salvation uh, is that it shows us very clearly that it is God who saves. Mm. Um, it's God who saves, right? Ephesians 2a, by grace you have been saved, right? Grace from eternity past through time to eternity future, it's all of grace, right? And it frees us from a works-based salvation, or the evil of thinking that we could take credit to some extent in our salvation, right? We, you know, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. I found him, right? No, he chose us. He set his electing love on us, not the other way around, right? And it, it, it so frees me. That was just my first thought. It's just, it frees so we could breathe a sigh of relief that we could just say our God saves, and put a period at the end of that sentence and just relax. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly on that, Mike. You know, <clears throat> knowing that w- what the Lord has decreed in eternity past will come to fruition. And knowing that if he foreknew us, if he foreloved us, he predestined us, then obviously he's the one who raises us from the dead. He regenerates us. And he justifies, he adopts us. And then we obviously go through this process of sanctification and then as Amelia alluded to is we'll enter the immediate or intermediate state. And then, but one day we will have glorified bodies. He'll raise our bodies from the dead. And what a beautiful truth that is that salvation is of the Lord. You know, I think often in, in today's, um, you know, in, um, in today's gospel message, it's, it's almost like 
hey, you can decide to follow Jesus. You know what? It's it's you have to do this. And in, in essence, what's happened is is people have taken such a man centered approach to the gospel and it's taken such a man centered approach to theology. And it's really this semi Pelagianism type mentality that's pretty much infiltrated the church today. And but the reality is, is salvation is all of the Lord. He's the one that predestined us. He's the one that, again, you know, before that foreknew us. And it's all to the praise of a glorious of the glory of his grace, as Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 says. And again, it, it's not what we do. We can't save ourselves. And the reality is, is when we understand the order salutis, we understand that salvation is of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, Sinclair points out on page 18 that there are some dangers in association with thinking of things systematically versus experientially. And I think this was a, this was a good point, maybe a little bit complicated uh, for some folks when they read this, but uh, just the idea that we might know the theology, we might be able to articulate the systematics of it, but we can't mistake that those systematics are going to be as tightly woven into our experience so that our experience should look like a very clean system of theology, right? When in reality, if we're honest, our lives often look very messy. They look very, um, it looks much more like a, like a disjointed and fragmented kind of experience where, you know, we, you know, like somebody tells, told me once, you know, I don't feel justified. <laughs> well, at the same time, you know, justification is not a feeling, right? Justification is a, is a forensic reality, okay? It should produce a feeling, of course, being justified should produce gratitude, it should produce joy and peace and love and, and those kinds of things. But I think that was a very good point for folks to be just at a point of being real and authentic, that just because we have a tightly woven order salutis, that doesn't mean that's what we're going to what it's going to feel like, or that's going to be our general experience over life. And again, it's it's meant to work the other way, right? When we don't feel grounded, when we don't feel uh, sound in our experience, it is those doctrines that are there to ground us into reality, to be the foundation upon which we build our lives. And so I thought that was a that was a very good uh, section of the book. But um, I do want to get to Romans chapter eight because. That's a super huge text, and I just thought, Mike, if you would, maybe you can read the text here, because he interacts with Romans 8, verses 28 to 30, which is a remarkable passage. It, it is sort of like the biblical order salutis, right? It's kind of like, we make our lists, and Paul gives us a list right here. So why don't you read that for us, Mike, if you could, verses 28 to 30. For sure. It says, <clears throat> and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think for many people, when you think about the doctrines that are listed here, doctrines like foreknowledge and, and, and predestination and calling, which is election, 
and those things. I think it's, you know, obviously stemming from election and these sovereign aspects of salvation. You know, Sinclair is very honest to point out that for most Christians, these doctrines are very controversial. And so Kevin, as a pastor that will have to work people through this, <laughs> because we all do, you know, how do you kind of redirect people away from the, the typical kind of gravitating to the controversial, right? When we think of a doctrine like predestination, you know, and instead guiding them to have a correct view of these glorious doctrines. So how would you approach that? Yeah, I would, um, obviously, you know, we want to look at what the Bible says and the Bible is very clear in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And, um, you know, Sinclair Ferguson says that often this can be feel this can be a theological controversy. But I want to uh, what I try and do is I try and help people understand that if you grasp the doctrines of grace, it should humble you more than anything. Mm. It, it shouldn't be something that I chose God. No, God chose me. Why did He choose me? He set His love upon me, mm. and what what that's going to produce in your life? It's going to produce humility. It's going to produce a, a worship of God. And so as I'm talking with, with someone through this, and, and again, I think I mentioned uh, maybe a podcast or two ago, I was talking to an individual and he was talking about how he was treading water. And again, the lifeline came out and I was like, no, but no, bro, you were literally dead on the ocean floor. Okay. And um, the reality is, is that when you understand these doctrines, um, it produces such a humility in you, because I think we all know people that uh, maybe grew up in the same family or friends um, that aren't saved. And they've heard the same gospel as we have. And it's not like we sit there and pat ourselves on the back and go, well, I was more intelligent. I was smarter. Um, I just chose Jesus. No, when you understand this, understand that, that God regenerated me, that I was born again. It was the effectual call of God. It, it leaves you absolutely speechless and it, it makes you just want to worship the Lord and say, God, thank you. I was so undeserving. You know, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, his saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so I think when somebody understands the doctrines of grace, it produces such a humility and such a worship and such a thankfulness to God for saving them. Yeah, phenomenal. Um, I think it brings up another issue too, right, guys? And I want us to kind of all of us chime in on this because I think it's so big that sometimes when these doctrines are approached and they're approached from a controversial perspective, people have a, a, a problem with a doctrine of election, predestination. Some churches won't even let you teach on that. And yet we understand them, like Kevin, you pointed out, that they're so glorious that they should humble us to the dust, right? Um, and yet at the same time, it may in fact be drawing up something else going on in people's hearts, namely their view of Scripture and their commitment to Scripture. And so, I, you know, let's talk about that for a moment, you know, in terms of, you know, if we don't have the right attitude towards this theology, what does that, what does that mean when we have a wrong attitude as we approach the Word of God in general 
to say something like, hey, if, if your heart is not resolved, say, hey, I will follow the word of God where the word of God goes. I don't know. What, how have you guys, have you guys encountered that? And how have you guys kind of come back, you know, from that place? Because people can really unravel. I mean, I've had many conversations with people quickly unraveled from, hey, I don't like predestination election, and then, you know, I show it to them in the Bible, <laughs> and now your contention is literally with the Word of God. So, I don't know, Mike, maybe you might want to start us off there, but I, I think it just leads to such a serious issue. Yeah, it is It is a really serious issue. I mean, I've lost friends, we've lost friends uh, over, over these issues, um, and... You know, if I could just plagiarize off of Kevin because he said it so well, is humility, right? Like we we need to approach the scriptures with humility. They are all sufficient, uh, authoritative revelation of God. We're not, right? We're fallible, fallen creatures, and so often we we come and we approach the Bible with our presuppositions, and that's true all the time. But when we come to issues like this of God's sovereignty, of man's responsibility, we, we have to just allow the Bible to speak. Um, and then there's another thing that comes to my mind in the, in the multiple conversations I've had uh, over, over this issue is to be an honest student. Um, more often than not, I don't see people that are against the doctrines of grace actually reading Calvin or coming to the confessions or, or doing honest study, they're opening up the, the one side of the debating Calvinism book and not reading the other side, right? Like, and they just, we just hear what we want to hear and we read what we want to read to bolster, to bolster our own opinions and thoughts. And we're not actually intellectually honest with counter arguments and, that's, that comes from a, from a pride. Um, and that door swings both ways. Um, we're not saying it, it doesn't. We, we need to interact um, with opposing views as well um, and do so humbly and with grace and with empathy. But then at the end of the day, we just let the Bible speak where it speaks. And we submit to it. We don't try to conform it to us. Mm. Yeah. I think I've encountered people who they, they make this statement— um, you know, maybe not come right out and say these words, but they're implying that if God chose some, why didn't he choose others? Well, that's not fair, right? And, you know, and, and I just tell people, you don't want fair, you know? God is, God is not obligated to save anyone. And the reality is, is he has chosen to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And how, again, how humbling it is that he chose you before time began and he brought you to himself. And the reality is, is that you will be in his presence and you will see his glory and, and, and revel in it for all of eternity. And so I think one of the things that I've just encountered with people is talking through this is there's that, um, that notion of how's that fair? Now, I don't know if you guys, if, if you guys have experienced that too as well. If maybe if you guys want to talk about that as well, but that's just something that I've you know, experienced when I've talked to people. 
Yeah, I think that's you're exactly right. That's not fair. Well, hold on. The only thing that's not fair is is grace. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's that's getting what we don't deserve, you know, and and that's not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody's going to get judgment. That's what they deserve. Um, we sit here today on the side of we meaning the three of us in salvation in Christ where we're going to go to uh, later on in this chapter in Christ purely by grace. And we should sit back and be like, how, how did I get here? I don't deserve to be here, right? At any moment, if we think, no, I'm, I'm, no, this, this seems right, right? Like, I should be here. I'm in crowd. I'm good enough. I, like, we're, we're misunderstanding the whole thing, right? When we sit back and be like, wow, I'm in Christ. And if I say anything but, wow, sovereign grace, like, I, I'm missing it. Yeah. Yeah, amen. And and you're just failing to understand, you know, the the very purpose of these doctrines. Uh, far from getting us to just dive headlong into controversy philosophically or to doubt the word of God and its authority and its sufficiency, right? It's really meant to comfort us. And Sinclair, you know, on page 19, I want to read this little a small section here because I think it was a worthy quote. You know, speaking of these doctrines, he, he calls us to consider what they say. He says, in general, they teach us that nothing ever escapes from the overarching purpose of God for his people. Indeed, not only do all the circumstances of my life not take, take God by surprise, but he actually employs them for my blessing. He works them together like a master knitter, gathering together the many colored strands of wool. He puts into effect an intricate design which will be made clear only when the finished garment is held up to the admiring onlookers. This itself is a comfort in the darkest hour. And it certainly is. It's meant to remind us that at any moment in our lives, we need to remember the finished garment. We have to remember uh, what Sinclair Ferguson calls the God's ultimate purpose. And regarding that ultimate purpose, right, part of that, of course, has to do with making us or transforming us to be like Christ, to be renewed into the image of Christ. And I I think that's so crucial because uh, when we think about, you know, how God does this, I think sometimes Christians can be overwhelmed by their own lives and they can think about how sinful they are and how much of a failure they are. Their circumstances are bad. And so, I don't know, I just thought we should talk about this idea, this, the, the comforting idea that God is actually conforming us. He did all of this in a sense. He called us predestined, elected us, he foreknew us, so that we would be transformed into the image of Jesus to be made like Christ, to take upon his character. And so to that, you guys say what? I mean, it just goes back to me to the order of salutis is the fact that if he foreknew us and then obviously it's getting in glorification, but part of that process is our sanctification and knowing too that that is God's will for our life. I mean, if you look at first Thessalonians four, three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, right? Romans eight twenty eight, God's working everything together for good. But what is that good? It's making us more like Christ. You know, the good isn't, hey, I crashed my car and now I'm going to get a better car. You know, it's, it's, it's 
conforming us into Christ's image. And that is so important to know. And um, I have to remind myself, guys, I have to remind myself of that constantly. You know, we, li- we live in such a, a blessed society, a blessed culture here in blessed um, nation with the United States. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is we have a pretty comfortable life in a lot of ways. And again, we're not suffering maybe like our brothers and sisters are over in, in different countries. And if something doesn't happen because a lot of times you're used to things going your way. I have to remind myself when the trials and tribulations hit that that's God's purpose for my life. God's purpose is to make me like Christ. And we have to tell other people that as well. When, you know, as we've been talking about, um, you know, just how we counsel, how we, um, how we talk with people who are going through trials and speaking that truth to them and saying the best thing that God could ever do for you is to make you like Jesus. And, and again, speak that truth to them. And, and again, uh, reiterate to them, my, that to myself constantly as well. Mm-hmm. Amen. I mean, he, I, I laughed when, when Sinclair wrote this. This is at the top of page 20. He said, but the question arises, with such poor material, right? We're not giving him much to work with, right? <laughs> that, that's, that's a plight. With such poor material, how can God guarantee the glorious finished article? The answer is that for all the differences which mark the, fo- mark the followers of Christ, some things are always true of them. They have been foreknown by God, and he has predestined them. He has called them into his kingdom and justified them. It is these who will bear the image of his son on the day of glory. Right? We, we rightly should think of ourselves that we're not giving God much to work with. Right, we are broken, leaky vessels, you know, prone to wander. Um, that that's who that's who we are. I think if we ever think more highly of ourselves, you know, guys, hit me in the back of the head with something hard, right? Like, uh, we, we are just leaky people. And again, if if salvation was synergistic, meaning cooperative, like God does His part, we do our part, right? Like, okay. Um, what, what guarantee do I have that God is going to complete that finish end if this depends upon me at all, right? And that's not saying with inside salvation, sanctification, we don't have a part to play. We do have a part to play in our sanctification. There is obedience. There is ability now there for us to walk in righteousness and, and place ourselves uh, in, in, um, you know, inside habits of grace, you know, if you will. But, mm. but man, if, if God is not able to save us to begin with, um, what, what confidence do I have of his ability to bring me to the end? Right. Very, very little, because if it depends upon me, that's scary, but God is able from start to finish to save to the uttermost. Um, and he's able to accomplish all of his goals, right? What, what does he say there? The ultimate purpose, right? And then I wrote here just in the margins of my book, and he has the power to accomplish that ultimate purpose. And for that, I come to just worship. Hmm. Yeah, excellent points, guys. And I think this, I think that's why this chapter needs to be broken up into a couple episodes, because there's so much rich theology here um, that he is providing for believers just to contemplate the Christian life. And I think that's a great kind of place to end 
is the idea that God will bring to pass all that he has decreed. I and mean, we, we, we began talking about God's eternal plan, God's eternal decree, and we're reminded in Scripture uh, that what he began, he will finish, just like Paul says, right? The good work, the good thing he began in us, he will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus, because, of course, he is the—Christ is the not only the author, but he is the perfecter of our faith. And so— being conformed to the image of Christ is not just that we take on virtues. It's not just that we become more humble, more kind, more more thankful, and more holy, but it's also that we are on a trajectory. We're on a path. We Our lives are, are going from this world to the next. We are going from the, the wilderness to Canaan. We are pilgrims that are passing through, and we, we will reach that Sabbath land, and that will be a work of God as well to bring us all the way there. And so, very much so, it has to do with our capacity not just to reflect and to trust in the work that God has already done through His sovereignty, but what He's able to do and will do. And so, very much that we, uh, our assurance is very much on the line there to trust in what he will do in the perfecting of our faith. So, I don't know, great discussion, guys. I think this is a really helpful section of this chapter. Uh, Our next episode will finish up uh, what Sinclair has to say about these last few points here in this chapter. But uh, great conversation for all our listeners out there. Make sure you guys uh, subscribe and share and uh, tune in next time. Great time with you guys. Thank you guys so much for participating and for everyone out there, we'll see you next time. God bless.